Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 162, recorded on April 20th, 2022. The Cloud Pod catches a fleeting glimpse of Google Cloud optimizations. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. Well, actually, who are you, Ryan? Like, you, I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> it's been an eternity. Yeah, uh, so, you know, we... We we complained about your lack of notice on your PTO because mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't put it in the one place in the show notes where we track it right and we said two weeks and the listeners now know that it's been like five weeks yeah yeah since you've been here so you know they're all questioning you and and what you're, how you count two weeks but you know we're gonna let it go yeah. you know, we're just gonna like slide on by and and forget this ever happened as long as next time you you file all your paperwork in triplicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know when you live your life as a secret agent, you know with your 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 computer cover job and then your, you know, secret life, you know, it gets complicated and you don't always have the time to, to put in notice. And then you, you know, when you get captured and held in a cave somewhere, remote desert, it can take a little longer sometimes, but you know, I made it out. Right. Oh, I thought, I thought maybe Bane took you out and broke your back and you were recuperating (laughs) in a cave and in the Sahara Uh, and magically repaired your back with some magic voodoo magic, and then you mm-hmm. you came back to Gotham. Yeah, way, way, way worse. It was Ohio. It was Ohio. It was Ohio. But on the plus side, I do know Kung Fu now. So Awesome. Nice. <laughs> kind of reminds me of uh, my one of my favorite movies is the Hudsucker Proxy, yeah. the Coen Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, the guy's walking through the, the mail room, and it's like, if you do this, we'll dock you. If you don't give us notice, if you leave, we'll dock you. If you take extra vacation, we'll dock you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that film. That's great. Do you frequent the uh, Reddit uh, anti-work and people who are like, basically, you know, I took a vacation and then my my boss called me and said I couldn't take it because they were taking a vacation. And I said, yeah, here's my notice instead. Like, it's all these stories like that. It's sort of cathartic. <laughs> I sort of enjoy it. <laughs> I hung out there for a while after you mentioned it. The last time we, we hung out at that place, I won't mention. But... Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Undisclosed location. But yeah. it's just, I, I find it like a little bit, a little bit too much. I, I kind of maybe it's the uh, having interviewed all these candidates and things, and I, I see people behaving this way. I'm like, yeah, maybe that's just a little bit too far. Got to remember it's the internet. People make shit, makes the whole oh, yeah, time. Of course, yeah. You can't believe anything on the internet, so. apart from the podcast, of course. That's right. Yeah, the, totally. Uh, I mean, different. We're not on the internet. You're downloaded to your podcast player, so right. technically we're off the internet. So you can trust us. That's how I see it. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if that logic, you know, sticks for anybody, but. Uh, uh, well, you know, Jonathan, when we were going through the pre-read of the show notes, um, you brought up a gripe. And so uh, we are now turning it over to you to tell us about your gripe around the support button. It is. It's not a huge gripe, but I'm I'm super annoyed that they've moved the support functions into the regular services and uh, products uh, console. I used to click all, click all the time on the, the little smiley face whatever in the corner and billion dashboards still there. Bunch of other stuff still there. They move support. Absolutely hate it. Can't understand why they make it so much more difficult to get into a console. Well, that's easy because they want you to not use support because every time you <laughs> open a case, it costs them money. So if you can't find how to do it. <laughs> yeah, clever clever UI trick. It wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't so hard to find, though. Yeah. So I, I was curious about this because in my, in my console, and I'm not part of an enterprise organization, uh, I still have a, like a question mark with a circle around it. And I just click that, and the very first thing is the support center. Um, is that not a thing in organizations? Because I don't, I'm not in an organization anymore these days. Hmm. Huh. I've never seen that. Hmm. 
Maybe I just didn't click on it. I mean, I'm real time, real time <laughs> testing this out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, yeah, you just, there's a little, little question mark. It has a circle. You click it and then it pops up and says support center or expert help or repost, which no one goes there. Documentation, <laughs> training, and then getting started resource guide. And then you can send feedback about your <laughs> placement of the, of the support thing. Uh, maybe it's an organization CSP. About, about repost. Like. You know, there, was, there were a few things worse than all the outdated Amazon documentation that was, you, you'd Google, <laughs> and it'd be like, oh my God, this thing is this thing's eight years old, and it's talking about how to build that gateways on, you know, yeah. water wheels and things like this. What's even worse than that is that they've now deprecated all that stuff, and you can't find anything. Google's now absolutely useless for finding any reference material for Amazon, because it's like, this has been deprecated. Click to repost, and you click to repost. Does it take you to a relevant article? It does not. It does not. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I go to repost, um, I I am reminded of the XKCD comic uh, again. We talked about it before on the show about uh, you know what did this user see and and so like you know, the first one that comes up that I notice is problem problem setting up mobile device clients for Amazon Workmail, and it's had three views and it's been here for five hours and no one's answered it. And I really just want to know a couple questions about this. Like, yeah. Who uses Amazon Workmail yeah, why? that wants to use it with a mobile device? Mm -hmm. I, like, it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. I mean, I, I also hate Microsoft Exchange, and I will never run that, you know, again, if I have any say in it. But, you know, like, yeah, it just doesn't work on phones would be my, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> yeah, you want to use Workmail, you, you know, off yeah. to the races, my friend. Uh, but yeah, like when, especially when you have Google Workspaces and you have Office 365, why would you ever ever use these things. Then I saw actually the other day that Apple, I think, is doing a partnership with uh, with Google. So they'll actually front the Google uh, admin console into Apple. So you now get like this Apple-y experience for Google apps, which is kind of cool on the admin side. So there you go. Hmm. Weird, weird world. I, I don't miss my email ex exchange by five days mm -mm. whatsoever. Mm -mm. Which reminds me about uh, something that used to happen back in those exchange by five days, which was antitrust. Beautifully done. And Microsoft... <laughs> Nice, nice, nice segue, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Microsoft uh, in the in the late ninety nineties was uh, very much under antitrust scrutiny for its use of Internet Explorer as the default browser and installed on the computers. Uh, and they kind of got past that. And then, if you live in Europe, you get this lovely pop up when you first install Windows that says, "Which browser would you like to install? Would you like to install Opera <laughs> or Netscape or Firefox or whatever the hell it is?" Uh, and that was how they kind of got out of this trouble. But apparently, uh, some recent changes to the Microsoft licensing uh, to compete with other clouds has raised some inquiries from the antitrust review process in Brussels. So, oh. According to critics, including AWS, of course, uh, to draw customers to its Azure cloud computing service and away from uh, its rivals, in particular Amazon Web Services, which dominates the cloud market, uh, they're using Windows and Office to feed the growth of Azure, the critics claim, and it's illegally tying the software together. Uh, Microsoft argues that they are not limiting the market as they still sh allow others to run their software in the cloud or in any cloud. Uh, however, Brad Smith uh, does concede that Microsoft has been partially at fault with pointing to, now without pointing to some specifics. Uh, and he says, while not all of these claims are valid, some of them are, and we'll make changes soon to address them, uh, committing to listening to our customers and meeting the needs of our European cloud providers. Um, these changes were, of course, all made in October 2019 when they uh, changed the SQL Server licensing terms to not allow you to portability, you know, portability rights without paying extra for it, uh, as well as changes to the SQL Server to vCPU uh, license requirements. Azure allows you to get four for every license, and uh, AWS and Google are stuck to two. As well as they didn't, uh, they no longer allow you to move Windows Desktop uh, to other cloud providers, 
uh, with your licensing anymore. So now forcing you to use the only only Azure desktop product is the only one that actually gives you a true Windows desktop experience. Everyone else has to use terminal services. Uh, and so there's a quote here from Michael Silver from Gartner. The focus is growing on the company. Customers are very frustrated with what they perceive as Microsoft not letting them use the cloud of their choice. And he added that many, the license fear seems to be returned to the old Microsoft ways, which is not always great. So I will be curious to see what Brad Smith does on this one if he rolls any of this back. But uh, I do, being a Google customer and an AWS customer before that, uh, I do feel the pain of Microsoft's licensing for sure. I, I tell you what he will do, or what he won't do even. Uh, if he has to roll it back, he'll roll it back for Europe mm-hmm. and not for anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll be as pinpoint as they have to be, right? Yeah. For, to, to skirt around the laws. Because, I mean, a lot of, you know, the the success of Azure is is because of, you know, either licensing tricks or ease, or, you know, and they're not competing as they should be by, you know, the how excellent their services are and how the breadth of services they can provide. So it's, I, it's a, you know, shady pool and I don't like it. I was actually having a conversation today about um, uh, SQL Server, which is currently on-prem, potentially to move to the cloud. And it's, well, do we deploy on EC2 instances with a, with a portable license? Do we use RDS? Do we do something else? And because of the cost of licensing um, with, with, the, with the non-portable licenses, uh, it just makes more sense to invest time in engineering to, to migrate off SQL Server mm-hmm. to something else, whether it's Postgres or or some combination of other services to meet the same requirements. That's they're shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, I mean it's the same thing Oracle did, right? Like mm-hmm. it got too expensive, it got too you know legal uh, lawsuit territory with Oracle, and so everyone moved off of Oracle. That's why Amazon has spent years moving off of Oracle to Postgres and Aurora, um, is for that exact reason. And so yeah, Amazon or Microsoft's kind of following the same the same uh, gotcha there. Uh, and so, yeah, it is interesting because the the costs of SQL Server on Easy Two or bare metal uh, or Cloud SQL, heaven forbid, are just really expensive for what you're getting. And you can't use the same technologies you do on prem, like clustering. You're forced into always on groups, which has different limitations and different issues. There's lots of lots of challenges there. And it takes decades to to truly move off of it, and the customers are left in a you know crossfire while that's going down. Yep. So yeah, so we'll keep an eye on this. Hopefully. Uh, we will see uh, some changes, maybe in Europe only. But uh, I would assume that if it happens in Europe, then you can then you know arm wrestle your sales rep into giving you the same terms in the U.S. <laughs> especially if you have a, especially if you have an EU entity. Uh, so we'll see what they do anything or or if this make it worse, which is probably what will happen. Is somehow it'll look better but be worse, sort of like the Google price increase. Like it sounds great for some, and then it was really bad for a lot of other people. That's how that worked out. So. All right, let's move to AWS. Uh, so if you're using Amazon FSx for NetApp on tap, uh, you know, one of the challenges was that you only could deploy it in a multi-AZ deployment model, which if you're in dev and you don't need that high availability, was costing you a lot of money to do basic testing. And so AWS has your back now, making it available to launch a new single AZ deployment of NetApp on tap FSx, designed to provide high availability and durability within an AZ at a level similar to an on-premise file system. AWS infrastructure powering each single AZ file system resides in a separate fault domain within a single AZ, and the new deployment types offer the same ease of use and data management capabilities as a multi-AZ option with 50% lower storage costs and a 40% lower throughput cost. And file operations deliver sub-millisecond latency for SSC storage and tens of milliseconds for capacity pool storage, uh, up to hundreds of thousands of IOPS. I think this is the first time I've ever heard there was such a thing as separate failure domains within an AZ. 
And it makes a lot of sense because we know that some AZs, some regions, in fact, are made up of tens of data centers. And each AZ could be potentially 10 or 13 data centers, especially looking at um, Virginia. But um, wouldn't it be great for, for Amazon's customers to have access to that information and be able to deploy in separate fault domains within a single AZ? I mean, probably screw up their capacity planning uh, entirely and cause other issues, but be able to provide the same level of availability as you would do with multiple AZs within a single AZ and avoid all the cross-network traffic um, and, and reduce latency. That's That's kind of cool. I mean, you can kind of get there with placement groups and a couple other things like that, but it, it's, it doesn't ever work out to be worth it, typically adding that complexity for, for those types of failures. So we, when we interviewed Anthony Lai recently from, from NetApp about their cloud offerings, the cloud strategy, I, one of the questions I asked him was, you know, was the reason why you waited this long to deploy this or work with Amazon on this thing? I kind of wonder if the, the availability of, of this type of feature um, you know, deploying highly available uh, services in a single AZ is actually what what was kind of the uh, the tipping point for running that service. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that they've sort of had it for a while, though, because I, I agree with the placement groups, but also HPC workloads um, would definitely need, you know, some type of resiliency within a single AZ. Uh, but, you, still, you know, to get that sub-millisecond latency, it has to be all in the same AZ, right? You can't get that if you're crossing multiple AZs. Uh, in an HPC configuration. So there had to be a way to do it. And maybe it was just something you only got exposed to if you're using HPC technologies. Um, and then you, Amazon would tell you more about that. But uh, yeah, it is kind of interesting. Uh, but you know, you mentioned an interview with Anthony Lai. Uh, what's that about, Jonathan? Well, Anthony Lai is, uh, what is he, VP of Cloud Strategy? SVP. SVP? Yeah, um, yes. at NetApp. And a great interview with him, which has launched uh, a couple of days ago. Everyone should check out on the website. Yeah, in your feed right now. Listen to Jonathan and I talk to Anthony, which was a great conversation. Uh, Anthony's a great guy. I've talked to him many, many times uh, in the past. Uh, you know, at different conferences and such. And he's uh, he's you know really the the forefather of all of the great cloud stuff that NetApp is doing uh, on all of the cloud providers. And so it was a great chat to hear so his viewpoint and his strategy and kind of how they're going uh, about their journey to the cloud. Well, enough enough selling our own podcast. Uh, moving on to. <laughs> Mash that like button. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do too. Uh, AWS Fargate uh, now delivers faster scaling of your applications uh, with Amazon ECS and EKS providing a managed control plane and simplicity-focused experience to reduce infrastructure management operations when deploying your container-based workload. Fargate for EKS and ECS has made up several improvements over the last year that enable you to scale applications up to 16 times faster, making it easier to build and run applications at a larger scale on Fargate. Uh, before 2021, uh, before the dark days of COVID, you would have to wait for nearly 15 minutes to scale an application to 500 tasks. When running one-time or periodic batch jobs, workloads on Fargate would now allow accounts to burst up to 100 on-demand or spot tasks with a sustained task launch rate of 20 tasks per second, 20 times faster than before. Alongside this release, they provided a very in-depth blog that gets very deep into the details and task scheduling on ECS. Uh, and we added our next story, and I'm going to let Ryan tell you about that detailed blog post. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Amazon released a very in- thorough, in-depth uh, blog post about you know ECS and and how they manage scaling and, and task placement and scheduling. And so task placement and scheduling is central to what Amazon ECS does. And you know, I, I there was the level of detail that only a true nerd could love about you know 
task placement, API limits, and the differences in scaling on whether it's an EC2 workload, a Fargate workload, or even a workload in ECS anywhere. Uh, Amazon uses a token bucket algorithm to limit the API actions on ECS so that one customer's actions are you know, not impacting another. And you can read more about that um, in an article in the Builders Library, which we will include a link in the show notes. But the gist of it is that the token bucket fills up with tokens at a set rate up to the service limit configured for your account. When you call an ECS API, the control plane removes a token from the bucket. And because of all this complexity, it can lead to some unexpected scaling behavior since the Fargate API is account-wide, while the run task API limits are separate, and then there's even a Fargate sustained run task launch rate limit as well. Uh, run task APIs are limited to 10 task launches per API call, in addition to the token bucket limits, which effectively limit you to 40 run task API calls per second. And then Fargate workloads are subject to 20 task launches per second. Um, I'm sure all of you have been able to follow along and keep that calculus in your head so you know how much you can launch per second. Uh, but for those of you who not, there is a handy table in the blog post that provides benchmark timing for different workloads and different combinations. Um, you know, services with a load balancer, without a load balancer, VPC networking, etc. You know, the blog post goes into detail um, about specifically how they were able to achieve, you know, scaling Fargate workloads 16x what they could previously. Um, and then, you know, I thought it was interesting that they they were even boasting that they could, you know, the EC2 hosted workloads. Were, were doubled in terms of rate of task placements, even when having to scale in the ECS, EC2 layer underneath the containers. Um, the blog post links to another article if you're you know super nerdy like me and want to go even further deep dive. Um, there's an article by an AWS container, container hero named Vlad Ionescu, and he goes very has a very extensive article researching and providing metrics on scaling rates of ECS, which we will also post in the show notes. I think I did a pretty good job butchering my own writing. Awesome. This podcast thing's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Show notes are hard. <laughs> Since you read that article and wrote the show notes, it was made sense for you to walk yeah. us through it because I did yeah. not because you're the show notes in that one. So you're welcome. <laughs> I, I kind of um, smile at the 16x thing because... It so reminds me of like, you know, CD-ROMs and CD-ROM speeds. You had the first CD-ROMs that were like 150K a second. Then it's like, well, this is 10X or this is 15X or 40X. And like decades later, you're still quantifying the speed of data transfer in terms of something that nobody has ever seen anymore. Hmm. Just like the uh, the save icon being a floppy disk. I'm like, what the, what the hell is that supposed to be? <laughs> Those are real? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I mean, like t- t- 10x what Fargate used to be, but what, what's that in comparison to what auto scaling used to be mm-hmm. five years ago, for example? I mean, it's, it's in, in the grand scheme of things, it's a huge improvement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more and more they scale these things, the more they learn, the more they can optimize, the more they can cache, mm-hmm. and so they get better and faster at all these things over time. The thing I found most fascinating about reading through the article was something I just hadn't thought of before, which was the the rate of which you are calling different things, uh, if it's on a Fargate workload, for instance, because of that Fargate specific limitation, like the first three services you're concurrently updating, um, you'll actually get a much faster rate through ECS test launches, but that fourth service will be slower. And so at that point, you know, it the math works out where you're better off hosting it on EC2 because you're if you need that, that scaling capacity to be there instantly, 
you'll get it at least faster with EC2 based on those limitations. And so, you know, it's it's a lot more complex. And so, you know, I've worked with a with a lot of workloads and teams over the past year on trying to get ECS services to scale faster. And usually I just kind of look at them a little skeptically on like, do you really need this fast? But, um, <laughs> you know, like, like I know our workload, it's predictable. Yeah. I don't need it to scale that fast. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah. <laughs> no, but when they do performance testing, it's got to perform, you know, like a Corvette. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so. I had an executive ask me the other day, like, what's my, what's my container patching strategy? And I, I just kind of looked at them and it was like, um, I don't have one because mm-hmm. we don't patch containers. Yeah. <laughs> we, we build new folks. We build new. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. Uh, anyways, let's uh, talk about my favorite topic in the world, which is Microsoft <laughs> Active Directory. Uh, AWS is now launching a new configurable synchronization for Microsoft Active Directory. Uh, if you're using AD as your identity source, which everyone does, with AWS SSO, you can now configure your list of users and groups to synchronize the AD into AWS SSO and pause your synchronization. With configurable sync, you can synchronize users and groups consistent with your data sovereignty requirements. You can also pause sync when necessary and sync during desired hours only, uh, which is actually kind of a nice uh, you know, solution to a problem that would happen if your AD is down <laughs> and you can no longer log into your AWS cloud environment. That may be a problem. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> you know, this is a nice, uh, nice feature that you can maybe have that on a time delay or only do it once a night uh, or some schedule that makes sense. And then there's also some, I, I don't really understand the data sovereignty piece of it, I guess, other than maybe you don't want users in foreign countries, you don't want their user account to sync to other regions. I don't really understand that one, but that's okay. Someone can explain to me in, in Twitter. I'm guessing it's as simple as this group doesn't get access to this AWS resource. That makes sense. Or, yeah, or the, I mean, the directories can like, potentially contain personal information and you can exclude users from Europe potentially from being, um, for, from having users created in services in the US, which would then potentially suck in that, suck in that PII into um, US-based products. But the, uh, I can just imagine the outages that led to this feature though. It's, our AD was down, and you tried to sync, and it returned zero users, and you like <laughs> deprovisioned every every account on this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whoops. <clears throat> and then, uh, if you remember, when Log4j was all the rage back in mm. December, which was like five years ago. I think I've blacked that out. <laughs> yeah, I try to. Uh, Spring for Shell was my new one. I don't know if you guys had that one. That long ago. Yeah, I mean, it's been replaced by Spring for Shell and by <laughs> Ukraine Russian wars, and you know. Shields up, readiness, like all kinds of other security things have happened since Log4j. Uh, but Amazon released a hot patch uh, during this time for Coretto, and then they also ported that over to native Java. Uh, and apparently there was a vulnerability in their hot patch uh, that they have now fixed. Uh, and the only reason I'm mentioning this at all is because the cu- yeah, they actually posted this blog post before the customer uh, the customer researcher who detected it posted their blog. So Amazon's maybe listening to us and other critics uh, on Twitter <laughs> who are complaining that uh, it's great that you know you have this this reaction, but why do we find out from a third party first? Yeah, I think it's a little exaggerated. If you look at the score, it's it's like eight point something. It's a little little exaggerated. Um, sure, relaunching the Java. Binary with the different with different permissions than it had previously uh, could potentially be a vulnerability, but you know risk versus likelihood likelihood of occurring. You know, it's sort of Im- impact if it happens versus risk of it happening, absolutely tiny. And I think people shouldn't use containers as security boundaries anyway. And so you should have other protections in place. You should have egress controls. You should have um, SE Linux. 
a whole bunch of different layers in place. You should be doing container scanning. The whole vulnerability that they reported was based on the fact that somebody could have a malicious piece of software named Java in the path in a container, which would be invoked by the Amazon patch. Uh, and then could potentially break out of the system. Like the, the, it's like a whole string of things that could have happened for that to actually be be a reasonable vulnerability. And then you have to also not have the other layers of security in place. I, I think it's um, kind of a sales pitch from Palo Alto. Honestly, I think it's oh, guess guess what guess what product they're going to be pitching this month? Container security. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they have that in Prisma. I missed that it was a high severity on those CVEs. That's that's sort yeah. of silly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, so many companies seem to think containers are a security thing and a security perimeter, but they're not. If you watch any YouTube video on any jailbreak of a container, and then you'll realize how not secure they are <laughs> in yeah. some ways. That's why, that's why things like Firecracker exist now, because they give you a, a micro VM to run the container inside of, which gives you actual isolation through virtualization. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, let's talk about GCP and BigQuery Omni innovations uh, that enhance the customer experience to combine data with cross-cloud analytics. Google has launched the BigQuery Omni cross-cloud transfer to help customers combine data across their clouds from a single pane of glass. Data analysts, scientists, and engineers can load data from AWS and Azure to BigQuery without any data pipelines because it's all managed in SQL. It's accessible among all levels of an organization. There are three core benefits to this, of course. First, usability. With a single pane of glass, users tell BigQuery to filter and move data between clouds without any context switching. Of course, security with a federated identity model. Users don't have to share or store their credentials between cloud providers to access and copy their data. And latency uh, all around with data movement management, BigQuery's high-performance storage API, users can effortlessly move just the relevant data without having to wait for complex pipes. I mean, this is genius by by Google. You know, if you've got loads of data in S3, you don't want to move it. Uh, Amazon will charge you through the nose. And so you want that you know, all the functionality of BigQuery and all that to, to get your results out. This is fantastic. And so they're building in even more functionality and to make that easier, which I love. You should read the, the, um, the, the product announcement, actually. Omni itself, I mean, maybe you use it, maybe you don't, but the, the use case that they use or the case that they use in the article is quite interesting about purchase prediction. So taking, taking receipts and points of sale information and, and making predictions against customers for the things they may purchase in the future. And they all make sense now. I've been trying to figure out why Google has been having me scan receipts for the for the last uh, you know, couple of years with the Google surveys thing and paying me 60 cents a go. I've been helping <laughs> to build this, this model that they're now monetizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we know how Jonathan spends all of his free time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Reading white papers, of course. Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Well, and scanning receipts. <laughs> and scanning receipts. <laughs> and then the last story for Google, 
Google Cloud launches their Optimization AI, which is a cloud fleet routing API to help customers make route planning easier. And you all said to yourself, that's network routes, right? Nope, nope. Jonathan and Ryan chose the show titles. The story had to stay. And this is all about mapping routing. (laughs) Google's announcing the GA availability of the Optimization AI and of its first feature. Cloudfleet routing, CFR API. Optimization AI helps businesses plan for the future, decide the appropriate action, and clarify the business impact. And CFR specifically helps vehicle fleet operators create accurate fleet-wide routing plans at scale. So uh, there you guys go. No, there's now a new mapping API AI magic that'll help you reduce your CO2 and deliver true business impact by giving you no no lefts, only rights. <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave it here, guys. You guys picked the show title, yeah, and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then I, did the, then I did the show notes, and I was like, why did they choose this as the show title? I would have killed this story if I had gotten to show notes faster. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that's awesome. Thank you for that, you guys. I appreciate it. Make, give me a good yeah, you're, you're very welcome. To be fair, it's a difficult problem. Like it, In terms of... It, look at lists of interview questions from Google, algorithm questions, and the traveling salesman problem and optimizing journeys through multiple multiple locations, multiple cities, or anything else. It's a really hard problem. It only gets exponentially more difficult. And then the more the more inefficient you are with that, the, the more it costs the environment. The more it costs in time, the more it costs in money. So yeah, it's it's um it's actually it's a worthy problem to solve. I mean, it is a really cool There you go. I didn't read the article. okay, I'll be honest, I didn't read the article. I just thought it made a catchy show title. <laughs> oh, I, I just figured that was known. <laughs> I mean it does make it does make a great catchy show title. There's no yeah, we did not yeah. Yeah, I thought it was about routing, and then I got to the article, and I was writing up the show notes. I was like, "Oh no, this is about this is about mapping." Like that's not what I thought this was about at all. So, so I enjoyed it quite quite a bit. So. All right, well, 162 episodes. We haven't messed up a show totally yet, but okay, I'll take one for the team. That's my fault. <laughs> I don't know. It's a mess up. I mean, it's great. It's a great story. Like we can tell her, you know, yeah. what happened. What happened to that episode 162? You know, when we're at episode 500. Well, you know, this is a funny story. We Justin didn't was late on the show notes. He didn't get them done on time. We were at recording, and he said, "Pick a title, and we'll do the show notes old style." And then you guys picked a title based on the notes. And then we said we're not to record that night. It was a recording, so and I actually got to do show notes. So it was great. It's a mm-hmm. fun story. Tell your kids when because my kids listen to the podcast. I'm sure yours do too. Oh, Ryan has a telephone call from the routing service. Yeah, routing all calls too. Yeah, I'm yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. Also talked about Redmond here and Azure. Uh, in general, availability now is the new Azure SQL migration extension for the Azure Data Studio. Whether you're looking to lift and shift on-premise SQL Server databases to SQL Server on Azure VM infrastructure as a service or migrate and modernize them to Azure SQL managed instances, uh, the Azure SQL migration extension for Azure Data Studio, powered by the Azure Database Migration Service, will guide you through a simple wizard to reduce the complexities of your database migration. And the extension also performs assessments on your SQL database to give you the right recommendations for which instance type and setup to choose man i wish this had been a lightning round topic <laughs> <laughs> you, i mean the article that we linked to on this uh has a diagram that terrifies me i, I will have nightmares about it later <laughs> which is the workflow of the migration process is illustrated and there's like a source sql server then there's an smb file share server here all on premise and then your migration utility thing and then all these accounts over on the azure side and there's lots of lots of weird things in this one but you know, if you're doing this, uh, it's always nice to have a tool that tells you what to do. Yeah, the, the extensions I've seen in SQL migrations have been four months, six months, or twelve months. 
the next story is the public preview of Visual Studio Code extension for Azure Container Apps. Of course, Azure Container Apps is a service for building and deploying modern applications and microservices using serverless containers. This new Visual Studio Code extension is now available in public preview. And with this initial release, the Container Apps Visual Studio Code extension allows you to deploy apps from a container image and manage them directly from Visual Studio Code, making your developers' lives easier every day. I stunned both of you with this amazingness. I'm super excited by all of these announcements. Yeah. I hope you can hear it in my yeah. voice. I mean, you're, anytime we talk about Azure, you're super jazzed. I know. Mm. Yeah. I know. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the convenience of, of, of dev work like this is great, but I really wish we could enforce patterns, which, which mirror um, what we see in production deployments for the, for the dev teams as well, instead of giving them these one-off ways of backdooring code into things and, you know, sort of teach them the right way of doing things, teach them. It's really driving a wedge between developers and SRE, right? Who have to run, because it's just different concerns. Developers just want to run the code as fast as possible versus, you know, a production workload is going to have to have a lot different concerns with scaling and, and reliability and per different performance characteristics. So it's, it's interesting because it's, I like these things for one thing, but it's like you almost have to, once you're done with the development phase, just start over and just focus on deployment concerns. And yeah, I, I don't I, know what the answer is, but yeah. I wonder if it's almost a response to the, the Docker desktop licensing thing. I mean, devs would have been perfectly happy of, uh, with, with spinning up microservices locally with Docker desktop. And now, you know, if corporations don't want to pay the license fees, now they have another way of managing containers easily for the dev teams in the cloud they're already paying for. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. Wah, I hadn't thought of that. Docker. Yeah, could be. It was. Uh, I I will tell you that I had to buy Docker desktop, not yeah. from my company, because <laughs> we were. I I am all about Podman. I use Podman for everything now, which I I love. But you know, trying to get developers to learn a new tool is like yeah. pulling teeth. And it was like, well, for five dollars a month, we could just solve this problem. <laughs> and like for the number of developers who are doing container development, it's like okay, so that's like forty grand a year. Or we could be at risk of a licensing audit by Docker, or we could teach all these developers how to learn Podman and the forty thousand went out. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's the huge risk, right? Because there's no real limiting factor. So it's up to the honesty of your developers and whether or not they're paying attention, right? And so, like, yeah. Oh. I mean, we knew how many we needed because we have software that inventories, you know, stuff on laptop on corporate laptops. So if they're using it mm -hmm. on a corporate laptop, we knew they had it, and then we were able to just buy the licenses we needed, which worked out perfectly. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. All right. Next up is uh, Grafana. Uh, so if you were super excited that AWS had this managed Grafana service and you were jealous that Azure didn't have it because you have multi-cloud workloads, uh, Azure now has a managed Grafana service for you now as well in preview, uh, giving you the awesomeness of seamless connections across your Azure data sources and beyond. Azure Managed Grafana particularly optimizes the experience for Azure native data stores such as Azure Monitor and Data Explorer, thus making it easy for customers to connect to any resource in their subscription and view all resulting telemetry in a familiar Grafana dashboard. Uh, so I guess Grafana is just kind of winning out as the de facto dash, you know, single pane of glass for all, all needs. Is that what we're basically getting to? Mm -hmm. Just waiting for Google to come out with their Managed Grafana service, and then we have Grafana all the way down. Yeah. No, I mean, Grafana is just a, it's, it's easy to use. You can make some really pretty dashboards that displays your data in very rich detail. And 
you know, and I think it's really easy for these cloud providers to be like, oh yeah, no, we can just host that for you, you know, and it's, it's just dirt simple for them. So it's partnering with Grafana to, to get all that done. makes perfect sense. One less thing that I have to do is support, you know, hosting this on bare metal or virtualized instances and can be managed behind the scenes, which is great. And then, and it's all the Kubernetes, you know, fanboys that are, mm-hmm. Because that that is documented and copy pasted all over the internet. The full monitor your Kubernetes pods and services with Grafana and Prometheus makes sense. I mean, I I, I can definitely see it why it makes sense. And uh, I'm actually surprised why Google doesn't already have this. Maybe they do. They have a partnership with Grafana. I just haven't thought about uh, that. Already gives you this natively in the console. Because all the nice things about partners at Google is they end up natively in your console. Uh, which is you know one of the big complaints about partners on the AWS side is that you had to use different UIs. Uh, which doesn't really happen. All right, well, moving to Oracle. Uh, and this story just made me laugh. So they're announcing new features <laughs> for Oracle support rewards. And I said, support rewards? What's that? And that's a program that provides <laughs> Oracle licensed customers with rewards for using the Oracle Cloud infrastructure services. So this is like that thing where you're at a corporate company and they want you to tweet nice things about the company that you work for on Twitter or you know through your social media and all those things. And so they give a gamification process where they gamify you into using all these things and they give you stars or points or some other dumb shit that you basically it takes, you know, 50,000 points to get a uh, iPad and no human ever gets those things. And so you just give up and you just get a Starbucks $5 gift card because that's all you can ever get. Uh, that's what this is. <laughs> so you, you get an Oracle license and you use Oracle Cloud to give you support rewards that gives you uh, the ability to extend that value to buy more support, which is even better. It's not even good things with rewards. It's just you get more support with your support rewards uh, for using OCI. So they offset your Oracle support cost by moving that revenue to Oracle Cloud and you get a benefit of less expensive stuff, I guess. So there you go. That was... Yeah. Like it just makes me think of like the Oracle cloud users where it's like, oh no, we're one one support case away from our limit. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> don't touch anything. Well, silly. I, I think the, the analogy is not the analogy I would use. I would have used the uh, the cigarette packet analogy. You know, collecting <laughs> collecting um, codes for for smoking, uh, you know, cancer causing chemicals. That's that's more more what I think about when I think about Oracle. Uh, Services. <laughs> well, the good thing to know is that if you if you go and you spend a lot of money on really big boxes on Oracle Cloud, you know you, there is no limit to the amount of support rewards you can get. So you can Ooh. you can maybe even get free support if you spend enough money on OCI to counteract your entire bill. So yeah, so it's great. <laughs> I thought you guys would all love that because uh, I loved it as well. But I don't need to pay any for support if I don't use it either. So it's really not. That much, yeah, of an it's not that much of an incentive, is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was complaining on Twitter about uh, Oracle's terrible dumpster fire business model, and some Oracle person, you know, basically tried to argue with me that, uh, uh, you know, well, Oracle's not like that anymore. We've changed our ways, and and my comment back to him was, until Larry Ellison stands up at Oracle Open World and basically apologizes for their predatory business practices, I'd believe nothing. Because <laughs> you, you have to admit that you had a problem before I can believe that you're actually on a path to solving it. And, you know, no one at Oracle's ever said that they were doing a bad thing with suing customers all over the place. Maybe. All right, let's go to the lightning round without Peter. Uh, we are not going to score it today. 
and we will take turns reading it once again. And you guys put me first because I did not just talk for the last 40 some odd minutes. I love to talk more. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, so first up, general availability of Azure Archive Storage now available in Switzerland North. I mean, trust Microsoft to bury hard drives in the Alps. <laughs> nice. Nicely done. I just assume they really needed a neutral place to store everything. That's why they went Switzerland. <laughs> Azure Purview is now Microsoft Purview. Yep, that's that's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> and I still wonder what the hell Purview is. I, and like you know, in the Amazon world, right? Amazon versus AWS services. There's like there's a logic to it that once you understand, it makes sense. Like, oh, if it's an Amazon name service, it was made by the .dot com site, and then they turned it into a service that anybody could use. That's why it's Amazon something something. Uh, and then it was AWS. It was an AWS service first, uh, and that's how they do the Amazon. So, what's the what's the what's the codex on Microsoft versus Azure? Like, when do they name a product a Microsoft product versus an Azure product? Does anyone know? I don't know. Well, it's either not good I enough. think they're just trying to get around uh, the, the, the antitrust laws somehow. Like, if we just change the name of it, then we're fine. <laughs> I mean, I really think it's just a Microsoft play to dump it into your E5, Office 365 agreement, so that way they can charge you more money for that next year. And you do your next renewal, because now <laughs> we give you the DLP solutions of Purview, because that's what Purview is. It's DLP. But, yeah, yeah we'll see. Introducing DevSecOps solutions from AWS DevOps competency partners. Oh, great. Two things that no one knows what the hell they are. DevSecOps and DevOps. Yeah, I was going to say, is the first competency explaining what these are? <laughs> I don't know about you, but most DevSecOps I've come across have been incompetency partners. <laughs> but uh, yes. Crate.io extends database service offering to Google Cloud. Woo! <laughs> Maybe my wife will be excited about it because Crate and Barrel is finally on the Google Cloud. Like she'll understand what we do. <laughs> this is a stretch. I'm, I was trying to fill in the yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's better than anything, I, yeah. I did learn that there's another database that I've never heard of called Crate IO. That's what I learned for this announcement. Mm-hmm. Is actually <laughs> yep. like, oh, there's another NoSQL database out there that I didn't know about. Shocker. Yeah. And and now it's on Google Cloud. Thanks. They live in the yeah. sweet. Azure Cosmos DB announces general availability of DB Autoscale RUs. The entry point is now four times lower. Only Azure would think they can make the Cosmos four times smaller. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon Kendra releases Quip Connector to enable document search in Quip repositories. Which makes sense because I'm pretty sure Amazon Web Services and Amazon are the biggest customer of Quip in the entire world and maybe the only customer of Quip. (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what Quip is. I, I read it as Q-tip, so or I'm just lucky I didn't read that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually know what it was either until I was sitting next to. I was at a. I was at one of our Amazon uh, executive briefings, sitting next to our sales rep, and they were taking notes in Quip, and I was like watching what she was writing about the things I was saying, which was sort of awkward. Uh, <laughs> just taking notes about the things I was saying in the meeting, uh, and I was like, I've never heard of this software before, and so yeah, I went and looked at what Quip was, and I was like, I've never heard. It's like a, it's like a OneNote, but Quippy, and I think Salesforce owns it now. Maybe they bought it. Uh, yeah, cool. All right. Well, there are things coming up, of course. Uh, the Google Cloud Summit series continues with the Google Workspace Summit. If all of your Google app needs are there for you, as well as the Security Summit has been announced May 17th. 
uh, and the Applied ML Summit on June 9th, which are all coming up very soon. And then uh, Amazon Summit was this week. We did not go. We did not attend. We did not send anybody with stickers, uh, but some people pinged me on Twitter for stickers. Of course, they happen to be in the UK, which I love because now I get to pay $4.99 to ship stickers across the pond for free. That's okay. I'll do it anyways because I love our listeners. So if you also want stickers, this is your chance. Your chance to get them for free versus paying on our website the ridiculously low cost that we charge for them. Uh, you can DM me on on there or on Slack and I will email, I will mail you in the mail a hard sticker that you can put on your laptop to promote our podcast because we love you all and you want to share it. So we keep doing the show because if you don't listen to it, we don't do the show anymore, and then we're all sad, which will make you sad. So get a sticker. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Uh, and then, of course, the Microsoft Security Summit is going to be May 12th. This was just announced as well. Uh, so there's competing security summits, I think, or within five days of each other. So you go to Google's on 17th. You can go to Azure's first on the 12th, see how not to do it at the Azure Summit, and then go to the Google Summit and see how to do it right on May 17th. So it's good timing for both of them. And that, I think, is it for what I'm going to talk about this week for things coming up this week. But there's lots more in the show notes. Check it out uh, if you're interested in any upcoming events. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. You too. And thank you, everyone. See you next time. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.